idea of the 57th chapter and the 15th verse of that chapter. And it reads, For the high and exalted one, he who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, uh, who dwells in the high and holy place, but also with the contrite and humble in spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite, those that are overcome with sorrow for sin. We're looking at this this afternoon. You ask the question of what is a contrite heart? A contrite heart or spirit is when a man's person's uh, inner man uh, will have a will has been broken so that they no longer run after the things that they want to, but they surrender to the things that God wants them, as Jesus Christ said in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, if it's any other way, he said, but nevertheless, thy will be done. It's a complete surrender of what we have. Uh, it says a broken heart, a will says, I will no longer do this my way, uh, on my terms, but I will surrender to your ways. Psalm 51 and 17, the meaning of that, these verses and those verses where that's David in the book of Psalms, the 51st Psalm, after Nathan had came to him, they indicate that God doesn't primarily want sacrifices when someone sins. It's not a sacrifice, and the sacrificial system, I think, came in under age of conscience. In other words, that it's something that we necessarily have to do to appease the angry God or something to do the appease God. And, and that's not so. Uh, he says he accepts and deeply desires a broken spirit and a contrite heart is what God desires. And God brings those things about. He breaks us. He have to break us and and so while through circumstances and some things that are very, some people are very, very proudful as Nebuchadnezzar was given the pride. So God caused him to, gave him bestiality traits and caused him to dwell away from man a, a, a period of completeness, seven years in that condition. And after he came out of, uh, through that condition, he was ready to acknowledge who God was, and that's when Nebuchadnezzar wrote the fourth chapter of Daniel. Our proud pagan king became a servant aware of God, and he wrote the fourth chapter of Daniel after that breaking of pride. So uh, I think about my children, I think about myself, and uh, as I said earlier about as I get older and the things in life that was going on, that I, I become contrite, you know. I offer to God and see my mistakes and see where doing it my way, you know. It it hadn't profited me anything. It has caused me a lot of harm and detriment. We can see where it says, for my ways are not like your ways and my thoughts are not like your thoughts. So... What is the meaning of contrition in the Bible? Because we see where it says a contrite heart, a contrite heart. Contrition is deeply felt remorse 
I asked the Catholic Church, it's penitence. You know, you want to, when God convicts you of heart, you start trying to do penance to God, you know, uh, put, try to make the relationship right. And that's why I said a, a lot of the sacrificial system may have come about because man's a guilty conscience of man had, had developed on that. Christianity, the destation of past sins, and a resolve to make amends either from the love of God, that is, perfect contrition, or from the hope of heaven, that is, imperfect contrition. So, uh, you know, we, we can hope to get into heaven or hope to get to heaven. Or those are the people that are under good works and that they're doing things to think that they can make heaven, uh, get to heaven in that way. But uh, it's making amends from the perfect love of God, and that's when the Spirit comes into your life, and through godless sorrow, the contrition comes. And that's why he says God will not despise those things. What is the spiritual meaning of a contrite heart? The spiritual meaning of a contrite heart. Those who have a broken heart and a contrite spirit are willing to do anything and everything that God asks of them without resistance or resentment. It's a lot of people do things and they resent what they're doing or whatever. It fosters from conscience or something else trying to appease their conscience or whatever. But true spiritual, true spiritual contrition is there's, there's no resentment uh, or resistance to doing these things. They're voluntary, and you search. This becomes a part of your nature or who you are. This is to change man. This is to change man coming about. We cease doing things our way and learn to do them God's way instead. So we see that this is a person who takes Jesus Christ's yoke up on them and learn of him. They learn of his ways. They learn of the things of God. And they're walking with God. Uh, and they study God's word. Because what they're doing is trying to form that proper relationship with God. And that's why the Beatitudes are what he's talking about. Those that are poor in spirit. Because now we see it's nothing that we can do or derive of ourselves to put us in that con in a condition or place with God. In such a condition of submissiveness, the atonement can take effect and true repentance can occur because God has you right a place where you've humbled yourself or you begin to humble yourself in every instance, in every circumstance that you look for the way that is appeasing to God to come out of. Now, what are the characteristics of a contrite heart? What are those characteristics? A contrite heart or spirit is when a person's inner man uh, will has been broken so they no longer run after the things that they want but surrender to the things that God wants. In other words, like I said, it's thy will be done. It's no longer me. It's no longer self. Self is dethroned. It's no longer about life. It's no longer about covetousness or whatever. It's it's about the other. It points away from self. That's what I tell you about Nebuchadnezzar. 
his pride was broken about what he had done or his accomplishments. A broken heart, a will, and that's what I talk a lot of times about breaking a child's will. Uh, the will has to be broken, and I tell you about the bondage of the will. We are in bondage to Satan, or we in bondage to God, but we're all born in bondage to Satan. The, the breaking of the will, the will of God, is brought about by Jesus Christ, brought, brought by God, not to every individual. So it, there's a lot of people that are not born again because we are born by the will of God as children of God into the God family. Uh, it was surrendered to all of God's ways. We find ourselves dying to self. There's a great death to self that's occurring, coming about. Now, there are promises to those who come into contrition to God. There are promises, and that's what we're looking for, the bill upon the spiritual promises of God, not just a physical breaking, not just a breaking from a natural point of view. There's a lot of people that are broken from a natural point of view, a broken heart, a broken will or that desire to live, but God gives you a spiritual desire to live, which causes the outer man also to live also, but it's not of the flesh. Psalms 34 and 18 says, the Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and save it such as be of a contrite spirit. The Amplified says, the Lord is near to the broken, the heartbroken and he saved those who are crushed in the spirit, that is, contrite in heart, truly sorry for their sins. Those that show are those that have a deep remorse. So it, it is God causing you to take an inward look at self and what self has been. As Paul was looking at himself, that he was a blasphemer of the way of God, a blasphemer of the church, and he wrought all manner of persecution against the church of God, and he was sorrowful for that. There's a lot of times parents looks back on the way the children was raised or something they did, and the contrition is trying to make up to, to the child, or make up, you know, and, and like I said, it's not just in a parent-child relationship, but it's in any relationship that contrition that comes to, to acknowledge that you've been wrong, that your ways and what you've been was the wrong way. The living version says the Lord is close to those whose hearts are breaking. He rescued those who are humbly sorry for their sins. So we see that this is a spiritual state. It's not just saying these things, but it's actually something that's occurring. That's a, it's a God-filled sorrow, a sorrow that produces repentance unto life that this is of God. This is not someone that's sorry they got caught or sorry things are turned out the way they've turned out or whatever, but this is an era of sorrow of ways, a mending of broken ways as, as David had in the book of Psalms. I'll tell you, the 51st Psalm was one of David's Psalms as when Nathan came unto him. He said in the 17 verses, the sacrifice of God, a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. 
The Amplified Version says, My only sacrifice, the only thing that's acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart that is broken with sorrow for sin, thoroughly penitent, such, O God, you will not despise. Um, We see in the book of Romans when Paul was going over of the condition that we were in and what we had did and what God had did for us. God, Paul summed it up. I think it was the sixth chapter. He says uh, that what therefore, what let's search the the 12th chapter of Romans where Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So after we look at what all God's done for us and the clear conscience that he gives us, the removal of the guilt and what God has done for us, the contrition there, that we present our bodies unto him as a living sacrifice. And the sacrifice of a broken spirit, in other words, our lives then are convict. He convicts us of sin. We're convinced of our sinfulness and that there's nothing we can do to extricate ourselves out of that condition or whatever. And that there's remorse from being in that, in that way and that he is the substitute. He's the sacrificial substitute for those things that we have done. And that he comes into our lives and not all get to get chance to see those things. Isaiah, the 66th chapter, the second verse says, For all of those things, and talking about the heaven and earth and everything that he had created and made, he says his hands had made. And all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and tremble at my word. And, and I'm going to talk about that, him that is poor. And he's not talking about a necessarily an economical condition of poor, of poverty at, at that point in time in the Old Testament. Well, let me not go off too far off of a tangent so I can finish the, uh, what I'm trying to cover in that and come back to that. Uh he says to him that is poor in spirit, uh, but to this one, and Amplified says, but, this, but to this one I will look. I will look graciously to him who is humble and contrite in spirit and who reverently trembles at my word and honors my command. So we're trying to, to get through the Old Testament scriptures here with that who, who is God dwelling with. Who is he living with and walking with? And we see that he was with Job. He was with uh, Noah. And that God's grace have been here all alone or whatever. The Joel, the second chapter in the 13th verse says, Therefore also now saith the Lord, Turn ye even to me with all your heart, with fasting and with weeping and with mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. And turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repented him of the evil. So we see here a necessary action 
And we, as we study the New Testament, we'll see where repentance is required. In all of these conditions, it's a turning, and God puts or brings forth a situation that causes us to turn. And unless God repents us or causes us to repent, normally it's not a true repentance. And the repentance of God bringing forth godly sorrow. Now, uh, the Amplified reads, Even now, says the Lord, turn and come to me with all your heart that is in genuine repentance. And there's a lot of false repentance. There's a lot, a lot of untrue repentance. As we notice, Saul kept repenting to David, says, I'm sorry, David, and I turn. I'm sorry I did this. But he kept doing the same thing over it, and it never was a true repentance, he says. But with fasting and weeping and mourning until every barrier is removed and the broken fellowship is restored. So we see that this is a person that's not walking in agreement with God. But this fellowship, the evilness, the wicked deeds of someone who had departed away from the path of God. So he says, rip your heart to pieces in sorrow and contrition, not your garments. The high priest tore his robe and as a despicable or mournful situation or whatever. A lot of people would tear their garments and put dirt and stuff on their hands and, and calling themselves repenting. But that's not an actual repentance. Repentance is a spiritual action to where we're torn apart by the Spirit of God, which convicts us of wrongdoing, of walking in darkness, of walking in a way that's contrary to God, contrary to the way of God. So it's God turning, or God actually showing us that we are in the wrong way. He says, once we have that compassionate turn, where we can be convicted. You remember I said it removes guilt. It's it's a repentance not to be repented of. In other words, this is a true repentance that causes us to be regenerated. It says, now return in repentance to the Lord, for he is gracious, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, faithful to his covenant with his people, and he relents of evil, in other words, the sentence of evil. When his people genuinely turn to him, he genuinely turns the circumstances. He causes us to be fruitful. He brings fruitfulness in our lives when it's a true repentance, and it's not just mouth service, but it's an action that we do. Sometimes it causes divisions in the home. It causes division with your loved ones and everything, but that's the sacrifice of praise. That's the sacrifice of a life given to God at any cost. That's the living sacrifice. You give up those things that are dear and true to you, and you doing what is dear and true to God. That's the sacrifice that he's looking for. The living version says, that is why the Lord says, turn to me now while there is time. Give me all of your heart. Come with fasting, weeping, mourning. Let your remorse tear at your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. 
He is not easily angered. He is full of kindness and anxious not to punish you. So God is looking for you to get to that point by all of the downtrodden circumstances and situations that he've allowed to happen in your life as Balaam was on the road the cursed children of Israel. Notice of all that was thrown in his way, he never repented of himself and turned away from the direction he was headed. It's a moment of consciousness and awareness God brings us to it that we see that we're on a road to destruction. There's nothing we can do to help ourselves. Now we must petition the throne of grace for God to save us because as David says, you have the bones that you have broken, restore the bones that you have broken. In other words, his bones wasn't physically broken, but the connection that joined him to God, as Ezekiel said, all of the bones in the body is fitly joined together. But when they become discombobulated, when they're out of position, when they're out of joint, the whole body is out of joint. He says, restore unto me. You need a restoration of a whole lot of things. David realized the condition he was in, and only God could put him in that condition of reparation. In other words, of being fully restored. That's why we talk about restoration and healing from the Lord. It comes from the Lord, not from you or any, any other source. Can nobody put that back together which God had pulled apart? God has caused that because of you going further and further away from him. 2 Corinthians 7 and 10 talks about this sorrow that I was telling you about. It says, for godly sorrow, work at repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. And Amplified reads, for godly sorrow that is in accord with the will of God, produces a repentance without regret. It's not a regret. Uh, physically, it was a physical satisfaction or whatever. As David, when he says, against you and you only have I sinned, when he sinned against Bathsheba, well, it wasn't regret for the physical act of the pleasure that came, but it was regret for the sin. Uh, it was a sorrow against that he sinned against God. He says, I've sinned against you and you only. It wasn't a, the sin against Bathsheba, but it was the sin against God. It was an adulterous act. It was an act that brought about death. They both was complicit in the act. So it's not a matter of regret. It's a matter of remorse of who he had sinned against, and it was God. It wasn't Bathsheba he was looking at. He was looking at the fact that this was against God. That's why Joseph, when he was part of his wife, came to him and tried to seduce him or whatever. He ran away. He said, how could I do this? Not against part of it. How could I sin again? He says, how can I do this and sin against God? See, sin, transgression is against God. That's what sin is, the transgression of God's law. So he says, but worldly sorrow, the hopeless sorrow of those who do not believe produces death. And there, there are a lot of those that are sorrowful and they die in their sorrow or whatever because it's not a sorrow from God or whatever. It's a sorrow that life turned out miserable, a sorrow for 
certain other things, but it's not a sorrow that produced through God. Now, the living says, for God sometimes uses sorrow in our lives to help us turn away from sin and seek eternal life. We should never regret his sending it, but the sorrow of the man who is not a Christian is not the sorrow of true repentance and does not prevent eternal death. And you remember Paul when he caused the people to sorrow about the man caught in adultery, caught having an affair with his father's wife. He says, I'm not sorry that I've caused you to sorrow. Uh, he was sorry because in that sorrow worked it away to salvation to those that included. Sometimes it's a hurtful thing that comes about because Sometimes it's a separation in the family. Sometimes it's divorces. Sometimes it's a loss of job or, or walking away from a job or relationships or whatever. God brings these things in life. Just as he said, sometimes God uses sorrow in our lives to help us to turn away from sin. He may use cancer. He may use some catastrophic illness, some catastrophic loss in your life to bring about to where now you're seeking God, you seek eternal life because it's only through the intermission of God into the intervention of God that you see only God can repair this, this breach that had been brought brought about. Psalm 51, 16 through 17, where we were talking about David, there it says, For thou desire not sacrifice, else will I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Uh, Amplified says, for you do not delight in sacrifice, else would I give it. So David there seeing that God's not looking for sacrifice, and that's what I was telling you ever since Genesis, when Cain offered up a sacrifice, uh, a lot of people have been preaching from the position of what Cain offered and the rejection wasn't because of what he had offered. So it was a blood sacrifice that he offered of the fruit of his hands or whatever. We're looking at the attitude of disposition of Cain. That's why God says, why is thy countenance wrath? If thou doest well, won't that sacrifice be accepted? It was this disposition. He tells us in the book of Matthew before you offer up your offering, get right with your brother. It's the attitude, it's your position, it's the state of mind, it's a spiritual thing. But we are all into the physical and the material. We're not born again, so we don't understand it. Because if we have a broken heart, and that old heart we have has to be broken. All of that has to, when that's broken or whatever, now God gives us a new heart. He don't repair that old broken heart. He he circumcises us. He gives us a new heart where he writes his laws upon our heart. In other words, a new mind. That mind that's in us is the same mind that's in Christ Jesus. It's a transforming or renewing of the mind. It's a new way of thinking. It's a new way of acting. It's a new way of life. That old life, you died itself. You take up your cross and follow after him. You deny that old man. Now, as a converted man, 
David understood that animal sacrifices was really not doing anything except setting a pattern. And we see that in Hebrews or whatever. Sacrifices, animal sacrifices couldn't take away sin. They still had a consciousness of sin. That's why it had to be did year in and year out or whatever. That, that doesn't do anything to eradicate sin or removal of sin. So certainly they were tutors to those who understood the Israelites could sacrifice thousands of animals and not get a thing out of it. But David understood that it had to cost a man something. You remember at the threshing floor of Aruna, he says, I will not offer that unto God which hadn't cost me something. A sacrifice, that's exactly what it is. Sacrifice meaning that it costs something. You give up something. Sacrifice is a giving up. A sacrifice is giving up. That's why I told you earlier that you present your body as a living sacrifice. That's what you're giving to God, your body, your life. Now it's no longer yours if you've given it to God. Right? Right. He lives in and through you, and it's no longer you. A person sacrifices of himself when while human nature is being cut away when he, by the exercise of his will due to his faith in God, determines to do to do or not do something, even as Jesus later did. The sacrifice here, not my will be done, but his will be done. Not according to my nature. That's why it says, I says in fasting and mourning, because sometimes it's that human nature. I won't eat anything. I, I, I want to give up eating. I want to give up this so that I can grow in the Lord. I'm going to fast a while here. Fasting and prayer, talking to God. That's why he says, blessed of those that mourn. He says mourning is a part of it. It's the deep sorrow and penance for sin. Of what you have done. I look back and I tell you, I look back at my children as I was growing through the years of the way I raised them or some of the things I did. And I'm deeply broken by that. And your children will one day realize it's nothing you can do about that. It's like the old people that spill milk. It's nothing you can do about the life you lived, or how you raise your children or nothing else. All that's in, in the, the only thing that can fix that is time. And God is in time. God is the only one can fix those things. That's why I say we look for the reparation of a torn fatherly or motherly or brotherly or sisterly, whatever the relationship, whatever has been done, I can't fix that. God's the only one. I have to look to God to fix up past mess-ups, past things. David has to look to God. He knows that's the only one can fix what I have done. I I can't bring it to anybody else. Nobody else can fix this clock. It's shattered in so many pieces, and time won't heal these wounds. They say time heals all wounds. No, God has to do this. That's why he says, I'll heal you. By the force of his will, buttressed by his faith, he would make himself do something or keep himself from doing something. That every fiber of his passionate being yearned to do the opposite. He says, thank God you will not despise these things. So your faith is in God, not in what you do or don't do, because Jesus Christ have done it all. 
He've done everything, so our faith is in Him. It's in God. That's where the faith is. The broken spirit. You remember the beatitude and where we came from in Isaiah, the 31st, 57th chapter, the 15th verse about a broken and contrite heart, a broken heart and a contrite spirit. The broken spirit means to be overwhelmed with sorrow. Have you ever been broken up about something and you come to tears or you're crying up because why this is overcome. You, 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 your heart's broken. When this happens, all of the sorrow of somebody else, they can't repair that. God has to repair those things. Yes. And it gives you a new heart, that old heart. Contrite heart means to be completely penitent, feeling remorse and affected by guilt. Deeply regretful and wishing to atone for sin. A broken spirit and a contrite heart are virtually the same thing. So we're saying the same thing then when we do those things. This is further confirmation that the spirit is used as an aspect of mind that generates a wide diversity of activity, including but not restricted to conduct. Let me break that down. The spirit over an aspect of not financial, not activity, uh, of activity including, but not restricted to conduct, it affects that. You know, uh, you're sorry you hollered at somebody. You're sorry you got angry or did all of these things. Uh, Something that you did do, but... It must be clean and right if the conduct that is produced is going to be beneficial. In other words, God has to, how can I say this? David had killed Uriah. God had had to clean that up for him. Uh, What was his motivation in all of these things and what he did? Because he knew at the time what he was doing or whatever and the, to the extent that he had killed a good man, he had caused a, a breach between him and just, just Joab. But above all, he had sinned against God. How do he? How do we treat God's people here? Let, let me kind of skip through some of this here. He had to recognize the the disfellowship with God. In other words, that what was broken. Of, of of what he did. I, I guess during that year's time, but during that time it was before the baby was born because we know God said that he told David part of the punishment he was going to take the life of the child. But his relationship during that time wasn't right with God. Mm-hmm. And that's why God says turn back to him. And that's why I said, he said restoring to me these things that you had broken. So let, let me see, can I get to this poverty aspect and then maybe I could come back here to, to clean this up a little bit, what I've said. The recognition of poverty. We have to realize that we're broken. David may have realized that he didn't have the fellowship or wasn't what's going on, but it wasn't until Nathan came in and told David, 
about this parable of the man with the lamb or whatever. And that's when he said, you're the man, David. See, because even the punishment that David wanted to inflict upon this individual who, who had did this wasn't the punishment required by law. It was exceedingly extravagant punishment beyond what the law. Because he said that man shall die, but the punish the law would have required that he restore fourfold. And David says that man shall die. But then when he said, you're the man, and he convicted David, David realized how far he had got away from God. Because you remember I told you it was during those that time, was it, I'm trying to think of the episode where David had went and conquered these people, the Gemini, whoever it was, and put them on the swords and axes, Joab, that they had destroyed and utterly killed this, these people the, the, with the veracity that David had did it. And, you know, that's why God called him a man of blood. When we sin against God, when we do things against God, that's why when some women, uh, men go into prostitution or sexual destitution or drug addicts or, or begin to get so far away from God, their lives get so torn apart, the, the sin against God gets so far out there. And so now you're looking for a way to pay this back or restitution, just like with Gomer and Hosea. But something has to make you realize or recognize your poverty. Matthew 5 and 3 says, Blessed, spiritually prosperous are the poor in spirit, those devoid of spiritual arrogance. And I told you about Nebuchadnezzar was spiritually arrogant, and he was saying what a great kingdom he had built and that God brought him to sorrow of repentance through being cast out seven years and he was like a beast. And that's, you know, he repented after those seven years. He was restored back to his position of kingship and he wrote the fourth chapter of Daniel. But he had to recognize, God had to bring him to a point where he realized and recognized his poverty or his brokenness or that he wasn't what he thought he was. Pride was hiding all this. That's why I say the unbeliever can't see this. Those that are not children of God won't see these things. It says, those who regard themselves as insignificant and those that are prideful, those that aren't broken, see themselves as important. They see themselves as important in a relationship. A marriage is not going to work right if the husband and the other wife doesn't have a, a proper respect for the other and a proper uh, identification of themselves and don't think they're the most important. And that's what, one thing wrong with children. Children are the center of their world. They're the center of the universe to them. And that's why children has to be broken. I tell you, they will. Their desires have to be broken. He says, for there's those that are poor in spirit and poor and broken Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I told you I wanted to get to this word poor when I was back here on this other thing that I would get to that word poor and help define it to you. All right, where was I back here when I was saying the poor in spirit? 
what it meant in the Old Testament. Uh, the word poor has a wide variety of meanings and applications in both the Testaments. The Old Testament uses five different words for the Hebrew language, while the New Testament uses two different Greek words. But, however, these seven are translated into a large number of English words. Besides describing destitution, destitution means poor, they appear in context indicating oppression. Those that are oppressed, you know, the oppressed, the poor, the fatherless, the widows. Humility, humility, being defenseless, being defenseless of the poor. We see that happening in Gaza here while the Palestinians are being pummeled by Netanyahu and the Israeli and they're after Hamas or whatever, but the poor and destitute and starvation and humanitarian crisis is arising. The afflicted, those that are in want, the needy, the weak, thin, low, dependent, and socially inferior, all of those are used to describe the poor. Of the Greek, two Greek words translated poor in the New Testament, penes designates the working poor who own little or no property. That's in the New Testament. People in this state possess little in the way of material goods, but they earn what they have through their daily labor. That's the poor, let's say the poor working still, the poor working guy, those that are in poverty. This, therefore, is not the word used in, be, in the Beatitudes 5 and 3 when Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's not the same word. Here, poor is translated from tachos, which literally means to crouch or cower as one that's helpless. This falls in the category of when I was saying uh, defenseless, uh, needy, or weak, or dependent, or low. It signifies the beggar, one that's a beggar. You didn't heard of a sinner can be one beggar giving something to another beggar. The, the beggar, uh, the pauper, that word pauper, P-A-U-P-R, one that's in abject poverty, totally dependent on others for help and destitute of even the necessities of life. In Galatians 4 and 9, Paul uses it, that word translated, the beggarly elements of this world, those of us that return to the beggar elements of the world. Now, at first, poor simply indicated to be in material need, that is, to be in poverty. But gradually, the usage spread to other areas besides economics, economics, beside economics, beside material wealth. It indicates people in weakness, frailty, feebleness, fragility, dependence, subservient, defenseless, afflicted, and distressed. Those words can also mean poor. So you can see where it fits in when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Not economics now. It could mean economics. 
The poor were people who recognized their other helplessness before what life had dealt them. In other words, you saying that life has dealt me a hand and it's nothing I can do to extricate myself from this poverty or from this condition of being poor and that I need help. They recognized that nothing within their power solved their weak state. Thus, they would eagerly reach out to others for assistance in rising out of their situation as a beggar would do. Uh, if they become frail in health, as some people as they get older, uh, health fails them, the spouse is depending upon the other spouse for for care, uh, be, be a caregiver to them, or they need to go into a nursing home or something, or things happen, but they're dependent upon somebody else because they can't do it themselves. Poor in spirit. Now, we were talking physical, but look at listening at poor in spirit also because this is where the crooks of the definition comes in. Eventually, the word took on spiritual overtones because some began to perceive that these afflicted people often had no refuge but God. That's the only thing. And it's not that God is just with the poor when it says he's with them, he draws nigh to them. God is not with just those that's in poverty or that are in poor, but that's the way it was looked at or viewed. David, I was talking about David when he was saying he was poor. A person we would not consider as being defenseless, right? So he wouldn't be poor as being defenseless. Nonetheless, says of himself in a situation where he felt only God can deliver him out of that situation. He says, this is what he says in the song sermon, uh, the, the song. This poor man cried out and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. So David wasn't defenseless. He was the king of Israel, right? So he wasn't meaning poor and being defenseless. That's why I say we have to see from God's perspective of how we're viewing our poverty. And that's everything points toward God. It's from God's perspective. It's from us to God. And to grasp how Jesus uses the word poor in the Beatitudes, we must contemplate the mind of a person who finds himself in poverty. We must think about a think like that person who finds themselves in poverty. One who recognizes his poverty takes the necessary steps to be poor no longer. If you recognize, you remember I said the recognition, you have to just like an alcoholic, you have to say I'm an alcoholic. Well, you have to realize that you're poor, that you're a beggar, you're in a condition of poverty. You have to acknowledge this. And sometimes God takes you through a whole lot of things before you acknowledge this. As the Laodicean church, you remember that church, he says, even though they thought they have no need of nothing, he says that you're poor, wretched, and naked, and that they couldn't see. They had need of eyesight so that they can see. So they were a poor, wretched church. He may seek advice on how to resolve his dilemma get a change jobs or curtail his spending to only necessary items, pay off his debt, or get rid of financially draining liabilities. If you realize, man, I got to get my budget straightened up, 
see this this layer of the sin. It wasn't that he didn't have financial wares or means. It's just that he was spiritually impoverished and that he needed to come to Jesus Christ and petition him that he would give him eyesight to anoint his eyes that he can see. So in your poverty, the word of God, that's why I say we must be born again. God has to bring about this condition, Sister Jackson. God has to bring about this condition to where we see our poverty or what's causing the problem. This is where godly sorrow comes in. We see our condition. God allows us to see, and those that God doesn't ever allow us to see, those that are blind, they can't see, so they can't realize that they're naked. That, that's those that turned over to a reprobate mind. They're in sin and they don't realize they're in sin. God hadn't convicted them of sin. The Holy Spirit comes in and does what? Convicts you of sin. And that's when we read his word and study his word to try to learn how to grow out of bondage. We learn how and we start to be healed. This poverty, this poorness, this is he starts to heal us. He starts to make restoration to us. He's bringing us in a condition of being right with him. Uh, in other words, we try to change the circumstances. God wants his children to have recognition of poverty regarding true spiritual things and possess the drive to seek their enrichment from him. In other words, not from the lottery, not from someone else, but by prayer service. I need to pray to God more. I need to come to God. First, ye seek the kingdom of heaven and all of these things to be added unto you. So I need to study his word. I need to seek his word, the growing the grace and knowledge of his word. But to do that, I must have ever increasing faith. And how does faith come? Faith come by hearing the word of God. So your church attendance need to be upped. You need to be in the word of God more. You need to hear the word of God more. You need to attend more church services. You need to attend more Bible study. You need to be with the people of God. In other words, those things that's going to get you out of poverty, you need to start doing those things that's going to get you out of the situation now that you see once I was blind, but now I see. Now God starts to help you improve that way. The Old Testament supplies the background for the use of poor. From statements like David's, we realize that when God prophesies regarding Jesus, he says, the spirit of the Lord God is up on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good tiding to who? To the poor. And you remember I said that preaching of the word that's what enriches us. That's what establishes us. And that's when we would what? Prosper and be in health because the word is able to make you wise unto salvation. Plus, as we seek in the kingdom of God, all these other things are be added unto us. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound. So you could be released from bondage. You'll have a, someone that's a refuge, a fortress. You'll be set free 
your heart will be mended. He says to preach broke to the brokenhearted, to to heal the brokenhearted, and to bring glad tidings to the poor. So all of these things happen through the word of God. That's why he says, blessed are these people that are poor. In other words, you recognize or you realize the position you're in, now you're going to need to take steps. You try to take steps to better that. And only those that God awakens, makes alive, he regenerates, he quickens that this happens to. He is not speaking of the economically poor, but to those who are poor in spiritual qualities or poor in terms of a relationship with him. And you remember I told you it was about relationship with God. It's about that broken fellowship. We have to turn back and walk with God. He said, draw nigh unto God and he'll draw nigh unto thee. He's near. He, the, those that he dwells with. In other words, make a abode with. He said, him and the Father and the Spirit, they would come and make their abode with us. Amen. Yes. One can be spiritually poor regardless of how much money you have. The layer of the sins was poor, wretched, and naked. He can be brokenhearted, though living in grand houses, driving luxurious automobiles, wearing the finest apparels, circulating the highest levels of society, and still yet be alone, still not feel love. All of the money in the world, but still jump off of a bridge or whatever because of the spiritual poverty. It's being, it's being captive to sin and Satan, addicted to drugs, of fashion and to the vain praise of men, you need, you remember I said to loose the, the bonds of the captive, to set the captives free. Yes. So your poor condition is no longer guarded by alcohol. Alcohol is no longer your master. You, it is, it's, it, the, the gospel, the word of God, that anointing breaks the yoke of those things. You no longer live to please man for the vain praise of men. That's what the Pharisees labored. They wanted the praise of men or whatever. Those things are broken away. Mm -hmm. It's the word of God that brings you into a rich fellowship with him, giving you no need of anything. Mm -hmm. All of these things are being added unto you. Uh, Jesus is not speaking to any. Pacific uh, demarcated group here. Those riches can motivate pride. Riches can make us proud. And you've seen a lot of proud and arrogant people. But also the economically poor possess proud also. Mm -hmm. Some people are too proud to ask for help. Mm -hmm. Some people are are too proud to say, well, loan me some money. Uh, Ask for anything. God says the reason some have not because they ask not. Some people are too proud to ask for it. Jesus says the poor blessed, uh, but neither poverty nor wealth can confer blessings. That's why Lemuria, if you look in the book of Proverbs, I think it's the 30th chapter, he says, make me not poor to where I be broken, beg, or rich, or be arrogant, or whatever. In other words, poverty nor wealth can confer blessings. You remember Esau, he had all of the blessings when Jacob came back or whatever, but he had lost the spiritual blessings. Yes. Money, as the Bible says, money can't buy love. Mm-hmm. Money can't buy happiness. 
Though poverty may help to lead a person to humility, and you've heard of people say, well, the God keeps him humble by keeping him broke. Sometimes poverty leads to you being humility. So we don't know how God's working this in whose life, and each and every one of us are different, but there are things that we have to consider and start looking at in Christ. Both poverty and wealth can entail great spiritual pride. There be many snares to those that are wealthy. But then poverty also has many a snare. And a lot of people hate the poor. A lot of people despise the poor. A poverty-stricken person can become very self-centered because of desperate need, and a wealthy person can become equally self-centered through his arrogance, a prolificacy. That is a wildly extravagant, a prolific spending, a completely given to dissipation and licentiousness. Charlie Sheen was talking about how much he spent on pornography and drugs at one time. He had the money to spend to do that. A lot of people just spend and spend. So both of them could be a trap. Mm. Anything can be a trap in the whole world. So we have to be given over unto God. Jesus' words cover the whole span of mankind's circumstances because anyone without a right and true relationship with God can fall within his description of poor, and Jesus uses it to relate to a spiritual quality. If you don't know God, you're poor. You, you're destitute. Yes. And that's why with the lay of the sins, he said, you poor, wretched, and naked um, I have a little bit more to say about David in that word. Poor, I may go five or ten minutes over here if I did. Poor does not stand alone. Jesus connects it with spirit to clarify his intentions. And he says those who are poor in spirit. Notice that he it doesn't stand by itself, that word poor. He says spirit is the connection and those that are poor in spirit. Even as the economically poor are very aware of their need, so also are the poor in spirit are aware of their needs. Yes, yes. Yet a vast difference lies between this and being financially destitute. Poverty of spirit is a fruit not produced in the natural man. Now notice that. Are, are we listening at? Yes. I just I said so are the poor in spirits. There's a vast difference between this and being financial destitute. But listen at this. I'm adding here, though. Poverty of spirit is a fruit not produced in the natural man, but a work of God's Holy Spirit in the minds of those he is called and is converting. No one can realize that they're poor in spirit if God is not calling they 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 of a reprobate mind. They think they have it all. That's why they're not. They op- understanding is not open. They don't realize their nakedness. It's like the emperor has on no clothes. It's like the Laodiceans. They're naked and don't know it. It's the, where the false prophets and false teachers are. In other words, they're thinking they're clothed, but. Those that are spiritual can see their nakedness because this comes from God. 
explaining why being poor in spirit can span the whole economic spectrum. It is why Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, or Joseph of Arathema all are very wealthy men and can be simultaneously poor in spirit and materially blessed of God. Do you understand that? It has nothing to do with wealth but a relationship with God. David referred to himself as a poor man in need of only what God could supply. You remember I says only God can supply these riches. Only God can receive these things. Now we have to continue this on Sunday in the teaching because I, I would go way over trying to show you where David starts this. But poverty and poor are not the same thing because like I said, the connecting switch there what Jesus was those that are poor in spirit. Remember, we're in the New Testament here. So the Old Testament was types and shadows, but those types and shadows are unlocked in the New Testament. Heavenly Father, as 